What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. Special show today, and not because my daughter Libby is back on air, but because my main man Gianni Harella is celebrating a birthday. <laughs> what's up, what's up, everyone? Big birthday for G. It was actually yesterday. My man turned 27, 27. How's it feel, bro? Um, I feel closer to 30. Closer to 30. I feel 30 already, but I hear 30 is the new 20. 30 is the new, like, 15. If you're 30, you're just a baby. <laughs> 30's like your 20s, but with a little bit more money. Yeah, but no understanding of shit yet. <laughs> Luckily, I'm not there yet. So you really don't know shit. I guess I don't know shit. No, but you do know a lot because you, as I always say, are one of those wise old souls. But most 27-year-olds, when I was 27, I was a knucklehead. Um, before we start the show want to just make mention of Virgil Abloh passing. I didn't know him. I knew so many people that knew him and so many people that I'm friendly with that were close with him. But regardless of that, just like tragic to see somebody so talented, so young, so just unique in what he brought to this entire culture and society and just sad and sad how he kept it to himself all this time, which I can understand and relate to. He wanted to probably just live his life. And it was a shock to so many, but I know for a fact that his impact and, and his legacy will be felt and remembered for generations to come. And um, did you ever get a chance to meet Virgil? Yeah, I did once. I met him at Up and Down. He was DJing a party. Yeah, I mean, just even that, like the DJing, the things he did on the side, and the fact that he's just like recognized as an incredible person, friend, collaborator, and then holding two positions like he held as creative director of men's at Louis and then obviously the creator and founder of Off-White. So rest in peace to Virgil and our love and thoughts and prayers with his family and close friends. Um, Gianni, you didn't sit in this interview with me, but I told you all about it. Jill Smoller, man, special one. She's great. I'm cool with her nieces. I mean, nephews. Are you? Yeah. How old are her nephews? Uh, one is my age, 25. One's a little older, like 29, 30. We get that a lot. Like people that I'm friendly with, that you're also friendly with, like little brother, nephew, niece. That's cool. It's a small world. Small world after all. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, but Jill Smoller's dope. She's so dope. So for those who don't know, Jill Smoller is the longtime agent and manager to the one and only Serena Williams. But she's also been recognized for just... What a trailblazer she's been. She really has that kind of like attitude that no one will stand in her way and she's going to get what she wants, but she does it with the right amount of conviction and her experience is unprecedented and she's just one of those ride or dies. You know that. You know the difference between a manager, even when they're at a company, who's a company manager and then somebody that may be working at a company, but they're ride or die for their client. And, and clearly that's why someone like Serena would stay with um, Jill for so long, no different than Venus has been with her manager, Carlos Fleming, for so long. I actually had a chance to speak to Venus for the first time the other day. How was it? Dope. Dope. We were talking potential opportunity together, but I just love tennis. <laughs> did you see King Richard? Man, did I? Yes, of course. I loved it. King Richard felt like I was watching like the Karate Kid, Rocky and all those like feel-good movies, except the difference was this was not fictional. And the two people that they were focused on don't just win and succeed. They become the two greatest 
if not two of the greatest athletes ever, or if not the two greatest athletes ever, two of the greatest athletes ever. It's just an insane story. To me, the most exciting part was that I stayed up, though, for the whole movie. (laughs) I have a real problem in my 40s, bro, staying staying awake for shows. And that doesn't happen to you, right? Maybe you're just watching the shows too late. No, I think it's because, uh, yeah, maybe. My brain's fried by the end of the day. I'll have dinner, hit my after-dinner dessert, courtesy of my friends at Weed Maps. <laughs> Weed Maps, baby. Gots to get the right strain. <laughs> Shout out to Andrea. Right <laughs> um, but yeah, you may be right, but I, I've accepted that shows will return to my life in my 50s. Like when I was younger, Sopranos, Six Feet Under, uh, Boardwalk Empire. I, I mean, watch so much shit. Now it's like I watch half episodes of shows. But King Richard was incredible. I was in like the edge of my seat. Not literally. That's just a saying. Yeah. It was so good. My favorite part is like the whole time he's this fantastic dad and the worst circumstances trying to raise his five girls. And then it just like shows him being a great person and dad. And then towards the end of it, his wife is just like, hold up. What about that time? Uh that kid came over and was like, I'm your son. And I'm like, oh, shit, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Exactly, bro. That's funny shit. The mom didn't get the same focus, but you know, mom. That one scene, though, where she's training Serena when the dad couldn't. Oh, my God. How dope it was, was amazing. That? It really amazing. it showed the teamwork. It showed that it showed like the regular family dynamic, too. Yeah. Like that happens when you got multiple kids and parents got to divide and conquer. But. Mom clearly knew what she was doing because Serena, whatever she was working on with Serena really came to fruition. Um, what other things you watching? You watching shows? Yeah. Succession, Curb, HBO just doesn't miss. Is uh, the new Curb season good? I haven't watched the new Curb season. There's one episode in it that is unanimously everyone who's watching Curb said is the best episode so far. Of this year of or this ever? E- of this year. I got to get back locked in. Some episodes haven't been so great. Really? Yeah. It's amazing it's even aged this well this long. I realize that my favorite character isn't Larry. It's Jeff. Yeah. I mean, well, Jeff, big Jeff. Yeah. Is Richard Lewis still on? He's not in this season, but he, his character is incredible, too. Incredible. Incredible. There was this girl that um, went to my high school whose uncle was Richard Lewis. And you know when you're younger, if you know, like, one person that knows anybody famous, you think it's just, like, the coolest shit ever? Oh, my God. You would appreciate this. Guess who I sat next to? Yes, You know who Louis Guzman is? Yeah. You know, I, sa- I met his son yesterday, and his son made me – he does drawings. They, they sell for a lot. He made me a drawing yesterday and gave it to me for my birthday. That's dope. Is Louis Guzman the uh, – Hey, ben, remember me? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Gra- and Grandma from Rounders. He's in every – the Rasta Master from How to Make yep. It. Carlito. um yeah so this girl uh her name was katie zucker amazing um her uncle was uh richard lewis and i remember being like yo that's richard lewis because he had like a sitcom (laughs) funny how that works um all right man well i'm excited i'm excited for you guys to listen to this jill is a uh a unicorn that's what i've been throwing that word around a lot lately she's a unicorn shout out to burner he came by last week he's a unicorn burner from cookies um all right my brother Happy birthday, belated. Thank you. Hope you had a great day yesterday, and I hope everybody listening enjoys. Shout out to Weed Maps. Shout out to uh, um, who else, G? Who should we shout out? Shout out to all the listeners, man. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, bro. Appreciate that. Let's take it away. Without further ado, please welcome 
superstar agent and manager to both Serena Williams and many other athletes and celebrities. Jill, what's up, baby? Ow! Jill, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, that's God. that's very, I don't know, super, super what? Super, know, survi- just, super survivor. Super survivor. Well, you, I mean, I was trying to come up with like the appropriate title for your incredible, illustrious career so far. But super agent feels very Jerry Maguire, yeah. Arlissy. Yeah, main bitch in house. M-B-I-H. All right. <laughs> Um, but I like doing these because first of all, this week you and I were trying to connect, which is funny because this is the way we finally connected. We spoke for like yeah. one second, but we exchanged calls. Um, so we can talk about everything, things we want to catch up on, but I do want to learn more about you. And what's pretty cool for me, especially when I get to interview friends and colleagues is it allows me to like dig a little deeper into like who I'm friends with and who I'm working with because I get to do a little research and then ask questions. So I'm really excited to talk to you. And one of the first things that I really didn't know, though I kind of knew, like I knew you were a tennis player, but I didn't really realize the level of tennis that you played at. Growing up, were you like tennis from an early age? This is what I'm gonna do because you have to commit early if you wanna play tennis. Yeah, I mean, sadly not. I mean, comparatively speaking, how things work in the world now, I was I was sort of a tool of I'm the youngest of four. Uh, There's two boys and two girls. And I was sort of my brother's play toy. Both my brother's play toys. They were both athletes, uh, lacrosse and hockey and and, and sort of everything across the board. So I was like their little uh, I I was game for anything. And so growing up, I was a, a phenomenal athlete. Um, not particularly the most focused because I like to do a lot of things. I play basketball. I, you know, so I, I was the sort of the family sports toy. Um, I, I focused in on tennis reasonably late. Um, you know, I had to make a choice. I think if I was going to be good at something and so probably at around 12, which is, you know, in, in time, in current times would be laughable because people are winning grand slams when they're, you know, 16, (laughs) 17, 18. Um, you know, I focused in on tennis and I made a decision to, um, you know, leave the womb to go down and be a student at the Nick Boletari Tennis Academy, which at the time, you know, was not as it is today as the IMG Academy, which is a super uh, sports learning facility. I mean, it's it's the best of the best. We were living in a, you know, converted Motel 6 on Manatee Avenue in Bradenton, Florida, and we were bussed to either uh, the the Nick Boletari courts or the Colony Beach and Tennis Club. And the the deal that I made with my parents, because at the time there was a, you know, what was called the Bradington Academy um, attached to the attached to the the school. Um, and they said, you know, you can go do this, but you have to enroll in a private school. So another choice was this place called St. Stephen's. And, you know, normally you'd go to school for a couple of hours in the morning. And, you know, I had to go to school for the first half of the day. And then I entered into the tennis program. But that that was the deal I made with my parents because they're like, we're not flying with the two or three hours of school. Uh, yeah. You know, to sort of a, a, a chartered a chartered uncredited school. Um, so that's the deal I made with them. And, you know, so I made that decision to focus, but uh, you know, the people that were there with me, I mean, it was back in the day of, you know, Jimmy Arias, Aaron Crickstein, Carling Bassett. I mean, you know, super names from the past. 
Um, I used to love Aaron Krikstein. Aaron Krikstein, right? Yeah, I forget you're a big tennis fan. Yeah, I so that's when I that's when I fo- that's when I honed in on the tennis. You know, two things that where'd you grow up? First of all, grew up in Larchmont, New York. Larchmont, New York. I'm an East Coast girl, hence the sweater always around my neck. It's that it's I, that little <laughs> East Coast, Westchester Westchester preppy sensibility. I like it though. I always try to rock that too. I try to make it like my <laughs> feel on it, but. I don't know. People don't. Everyone used to, you know, everybody laugh when I come out to L.A. because it's a very East Coast thing. And I always had it was like my cape. Yeah, I know. It was my my cape. Um, But so you made the decision to really hone in at 12. Was that like your own self-discipline or was that like the mandate from your parents? No, I just, you know, my parents had always said, like, you know, you can't be great at everything. You've got to you got to pick your you got to pick your poison and you've got to focus on it and give it your all. And, you know, what's the phrase, master of whatever that whatever that phrase is like, you can't jack of all trades, Yeah, jack of all trades, masters of (laughs) thank you, masters of master of none. So they were very, you know, they just wanted me, They, you know, always growing up. It's like, do the best with what you have. You know, I grew up in a, you know, in a great family. I had everything I ever needed. And, you know, I had a, a mom who. Um, you know, my father jokingly called the great enabler because she never wanted her kids to suffer, you know, and a dad who, um, you know, always wanted us learning the lessons, right? I used to, you know, I, I often bring, you know, I don't know how many times he said to me, the longer it takes to pay the price, Jilly Bean, the bigger the hit. And it's so <laughs> I true. That. Like, I, but, but it's like hearing that as a kid, you're like, God, I just want to be a kid, but it's like he, he had a lot of smolerisms that we we all have laminated in in our in in each of the kid we we have them and he, they've expanded over years. Some are some are his, some are just things that you you know if 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 something doesn't feel right, it's because it's not right. Yeah, right. Like you never you never say you know they're they're just basic things, but you know so so I think they he, they forced us to to pick something that we were going to put our everything into and to, you know, not take things for granted and to do, you know, success is really doing the most with what you have. I think a lot yeah. of, a lot of success is defined by what you get or, you know, what you start with. It's like, how much are you actually doing with the, the gifts that you're given? And are you making the most out of everything? Yep. Yep. I, I say the same thing to my kids about the things they love. Like, you know, I I was a little bit misguided. I, I thought like if I couldn't become a pro at something that I should stop doing it. So as soon as I had these epiphanies on every sport, I just like stopped playing. And it's such a shame because trying to be the best that you can be at a sport or a trade or anything like that is really cool. When you get there, it's a very cool feeling, yeah. even if it doesn't end up being your career. So you focus on tennis. You played professional tennis. I mean, Boletari was so cool. I always imagined the country club side of it, but I guess in the beginning it started pretty like yeah. so, raw. So, so giving you, so yes, there were, there were in this little converted, you know, motel six, there were three sets of bunk beds or two sets of bunk beds in each of the rooms. So sometimes there were eight of us in a room, sometimes six of us in a room. And we had, we were able to, and again, this is back in the beginning of it one night a week from, it was Saturday nights, I think from five to seven, you could either speak to your, make a phone call. There were pay phones out in the, in the, the 
common area, or you could go to the DeSoto Square Mall and just go to the mall. That was the entertainment. Yep. Otherwise, we were completely locked in there. So at the time, it was very boot campish. I think it taught me a lot about work ethic and discipline in a way I probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Um, and, you know, again, I think, you know, my tennis career was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I did, let's just say I did not, I, I got the most out of it in terms of my connections and networking and understanding work ethic and all that. But, you know, I think I left a lot on the table. I mean, I ended up having a great doubles career. My singles career was uh, be, beyond nothing to report home about. I had my first serious knee issue the year that the Olympics were going to be a demonstration sport in tennis. And I overran a ball in the baseline and I, and I tore my meniscus and it was at a time when they were just starting to do scopes. So yeah. I had my first surgery back then. And then, you know, I had 10 surgeries throughout my career. So, you know, I was somewhat limited in my movement and, you know, I, I also look, I've got a lot of life experience. Let's just say yeah. that. Um, and so, <laughs> um, you know, do I think I got the most out of myself? A hundred percent not. I was a great athlete. Um, mentally, I probably, you know, mentally I wasn't as keyed in as I needed to be. I think I, you know, my focus wasn't where it needed to be. So I think, you know, I learned a lot from the mistakes coming up in that. And, and yeah. again, going back to how do you get the most out of yourselves? I think one of the things that I've tried to do in my career is, you know, and you know this well, when you're dealing with iconic athletes, iconic entertainers, there's always a common theme of, there being some kind of dysfunction around. And I don't mean dysfunction in the sense that, you know, always something is going on, but the great theme and all the great ones is their ability to be able to drive through obstacle and, and trauma and drama. And I think because I had a lot of life experience and a decent amount of damage growing up personally, I think I wake up every morning and try to figure out how I'm staying out of my own way every day. And I think yeah. part of what we do is trying to help the people that we work with be able to solely focus on what they need to do and be able to help them stay out of their own way in the areas that don't need focus. To wrap up your tennis career though, what tell me some of your final um <laughs> tell me some of your final tallies cuz I didn't even know about the doubles thing. I'm learning even more now. I know you played in all four grand slams, yeah. but give me some of the highlights. I mean, I played so I played uh, I think, you know, I was always sort of top 50 in doubles. My singles never really took off. I was a great doubles player. Um, and, you know, it, it was at a time where, you know, I mean, I, I played when I, when I was coming on sort of Martina, Chrissy and that, that crew were starting to exit. So it was Steffi, Sabatini, uh, Mary Jo Fernandez, you know, those, those kind of names. So we're, we're taking it way back. And, you know, I, I ended up having a great doubles career, not particularly great singles career. And, you know, again, I, I, I stopped because, you know, my knee, I think my last match I played, I think I broke my ankle on court two at Wimbledon. You know, I, I, and, and I think that was the last, <laughs> that was the last match I played. And for me, it was just time. And, you know, again, coming from a family where it's like, you know, what, what determined success. It was, you know, I, I did the most I could do there. It wasn't going to be a, a career that I was going to be able to bank on. So what was my, what was my pivot? And, yep. and, you know, it was kind of time to 
decide what was next. And how old were you when you finally decided to stop that? I was 25 or 26. Amazing. So you're, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, like if you look at your journey next to some entrepreneur or somebody that went to school and got multiple degrees at 25, 26, you had obviously, like you said earlier, these incredible life lessons, this understanding about getting through obstacle, you know, trying to maximize your potential and, and to be able to stay calm and, and to continue on through all of it, all things that are you could not get in school. And those are those prize like principles that you see that athletes get when they go into the work world, into the real world, business yeah. world. So what was like, okay, cool. I got to the end of the, the rope here. Like, did you want to stay around the sport? Did you know that? Or was it just like, I need to go make money? Yeah, now I mean, I, I also went to school. I went to university of Arizona and, and was an all American there. And, and, you know, I feel like, you know, sports teaches you to problem solve, find solutions to things. And I think, you know, the nature of what we do is, is, you know, how to turn a yes, a no into a yes, but also how to problem solve and, and get the most out of any situation. And I think, you know, when you're, when you're in a single, an individual sport, you know, learning, you have to think out there on your own. Um, I, I think the best thing that I got out of it was my ability to connect with people. I've always been a great people connector and people person and understanding how to listen and, and make you know, and have people feel like you're listening so that they trust, they trust you with their life. Cause that's a lot of what we do. Like you're, we have a lot of responsibility in helping shape, you know, some of the greatest of all time. And, and how do we impart our life lessons and our wisdom and what we've learned coming up? Um, you know, I think college teaches you a lot of things, but you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, I always make the joke that, you know, when someone's coming in from a big degree, from a big school, can they actually figure stuff out? I think figuring it out is definitely like an overarching theme, at least to our business. But I think to a lot of entrepreneurs and to a lot of um, people in business in general is like at some point, you're not going to get told how to do something. You got to figure it out. And sometimes there won't be an answer or a solve and you got to figure it out. But getting to where you are right now in tennis, especially back then, it wasn't like, oh, here's X player, come run sports agency. Uh, you really had to start from yeah. the beginning. And again, in my research, I saw that you truly did start in the beginning in a mailroom and that you got this opportunity and tell me if I'm wrong because you were giving tennis lessons to somebody at an agency. I mean, close. It's like I initially wanted to go in, you know, I, I, I wanted to go in and, and be a, you know, tennis slash sports agent. And I didn't actually have a clear way in because, you know, I was a player. I didn't have a superstar career and, you know, business opportunities were different then. I, I used my networking. I had a very close relationship for Mark, with Mark McCormick um, in my youth. I played some doubles with his wife, Betsy Nagelson at the time. Um, I did, 
you know, a couple special projects there. My assumption was that I would try to get into IMG, but there wasn't a clear path for me. I didn't actually get a clear path. I ended up, you know, ideally I was going to go work on Wall Street initially. My brother is a trader, my sister is a trader, and that's kind of what my dad, you know, had in mind. And um, I was at a time in my life where I took a leap. I, uh, I'm 25 years sober, you know, for what it's worth. And uh, was definitely going down, you know, a track that was not going to end well. And for whatever the reason, I, I got an opportunity to interview. Uh, my brother was working at Paramount Pictures at the time. I, you know, he had some relationships in the entertainment space. And I got a number of interviews at talent agencies. And the one I ended up with, I started at ICM and I went through the training program process. And I was, you know, like 28 or 29. I was not a kid. I started super late. I had a lot of life skills and, and great people skills. But when I went, when I started, I, I made the decision. I moved out to LA on a Sunday night with no place to live and no car. And I had to show up in the mailroom um, at six o'clock in the morning. And I think at that time, I think I, we were, it was $200 a week. I think I took home like $314 every two weeks. And, and basically I got my, and, and I took the job and I had no entertainment experience. Part of the training program was doing script coverage. And the first night I did script coverage, which is, you know, reading a script and synopsizing it. And I did script coverage. I didn't come from a college, you know, I didn't come from a background where computers were just coming, <laughs> coming on board. And I did a script coverage, which should take probably two hours. It took me like six hours. And at four o'clock in the morning, it was part of my training program curriculum. I lost it. I didn't save it and I lost it at four o'clock in the morning Oh my God. and couldn't get it back. And I'm like, shit, this is not going to be for me. Cause it was, you know, again, a part of the training program curriculum. And I'm like, I just lost this coverage that took me all night to do. I don't, I didn't hit controls, uh, control S. I mean, we're going way back by the way. <laughs> control I didn't hit, S I didn't, hit, I didn't hit control S and it disappeared. And I was like, beside myself and I went in the next morning and I'm like, look, my dog didn't eat it. My kid didn't eat it. Here's what went down. I'm like, it, it is what it is. I, I suck. I'm just, you know, just getting into computers. I will say that, you know, my trajectory once I got in the training program in the mailroom was, you know, it was interesting. I, I tell this story a little bit. Everybody, I used to, there was, there was a literal mailroom back in the day, faxes and things didn't go into agents' computers. There were paper, faxes coming into the mailroom that we put in box slots. And then every two hours we had a mail cart and we'd go around and we'd deliver the stuff to the agents. So a couple things. One, I, I figured out what agents were interesting to me, what I wanted to learn and how did I get some kind of interaction with those agents. And, you know, at that time, whether it was getting coffee, going to pick up dry cleaning. I worked, you know, I, I would go to a restaurant and hold a table for a boss. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that you did back then. It was kind of the Wild West. Um, but I always tried to get put on faxes and everyone used to think it was because I was lazy. And what, what I did was every time something came in, I would read it. I would look like it's the first time I ever saw what a PR template was, what a movie contract looked like. I had nothing, I had no background. So what I would do is at lunchtime, I would go to the, everyone would go out to lunch and I would go to the copy machine and I would copy stuff that I wanted to take home and study. And that's how I sort of learned and saw things for the first time. And it's like, everyone would joke, I'm like, oh, Jill's on fax. Nobody wanted to be on faxes. 
because you'd sit yep. there and you'd basically take the facts out, you'd collate them, you'd put them in a mail, a mail slot, and then people would deliver them. But that's yep. how I studied and learned, you know, the beginning of the business because I had no business background. I had yep. great relationships all over the place, but you know, they didn't really transfer into anything until I got in there. And then, and then I figured out who liked tennis, right? There was a couple of guys. There was a, a guy that I worked for, Bill Block, Dave Wardshafter, who I'm still very close with. He, the, he and Jim Wyatt were running the agency, and I used to play tennis with them in the morning and every weekend. I would, Bill would have us playing tennis at 6 or 6.30, and then I'd get to the office, and he'd be like, why wasn't something done? I'm like, yep. I just got off the tennis court with you and just got in. But I use my <laughs> tennis I use my tennis. I was able to get in front of people that people that were top agents were having trouble getting on the phone because I would play tennis with everyone on the weekends. So I use my tennis as a way to weave in and build relationships with people. It was a great calling card in the same way golf is for, for people. Yeah. But it, it exposed me to a level of a level of executive that I could never have gotten to. For sure. And that's more to my point. And you don't have to be an ex-pro to get that access from a sport, you really just have to be really good. You know, when you're a pro, it's amazing. They want to yeah. play with you. But I tell my daughters that all the time. I want to tell you, first of all, I mean, you said it very quickly, but I want to um, really celebrate and applaud you on being sober for 25 years. That's very impressive. I didn't know that about you, but that's really amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah. So the kind of road now through, like, first of all, like when we talk about elite athletes and you talk about um, – people that are incredible at their craft, no matter what it is. I think when you can't pinpoint on a businesswoman or a businessman or an entrepreneur exactly what that skill set is, it, it is very reflective in actions. And one thing that I'll say that you said about reading faxes and you know using tennis to go play and finding out which agents play tennis, those are the things that you could never teach somebody. Those are the things that you could never write on a manual for how to move up the ladder. And those are things that, you know, are a case by case basis, but it still falls under that like umbrella of figure it out, you know, and when you want to get up the ladder and you're sitting in a corporate environment and there's so many people in front of you um, for better or for worse, especially back when you and I were coming up in business, the culture of like promoting people and identifying young people and bringing them up didn't exist. So to make yourself known and make yourself seen, you had to really do whatever you had to do. And that was tennis, reading faxes, waiting at restaurants to hold tables. Mm -hmm. And that's so obvious because those are the same traits that make you an incredible manager and get everything done. But what was, now you're playing tennis with some of these agents and you have this network, but what were some of these like first few moments, first few signees, first few times where you started to feel like, okay, now I'm Jill Smoller, the agent, and your career started to kind of come into shape? <laughs> um, so back in the day, the training program was really structured. Um, and, and I was promoted to an agent within 10 months. I think so I I skipped a lot of stuff and I don't know that they would, you know, they do they would ever do it again this way because it created a lot of issues. I had a lot of contacts. I was older. I had already lived, you know, part of my life and I had a lot of life experience and a lot of the kids in the mailroom were, you know, 21, 22 coming in out of college or mom and dad run a studio or something. You know, and I was a little bit of an enigma and it's like, you know, I took a huge leap of faith and I was promoted. There was a guy in New York by the name of Mark Perman who was doing commercial booking for sports people in New York. 
And the gentleman that I, that I sort of started in this business with, he, he's passed away, but his name was Jack Gilardi. And he was an old school Hollywood agent. He actually did ha- you know, work with Howie Long and transitioning from Howie to, to movies, to, the, to Fox. And I sort of, I would sit in Jack's office. So I was on, I went from the mail room in six months, I skipped the script room. And then I went on the man by the name of Bill Block's desk. Bill Block is legendary in the business. Um, and, and he was one of the heads of motion picture and he had three assistants. I, I hate to say that you, you couldn't, I mean, I, I'm, we can either leave this out or not, but we were like jizz one, two, and three. I mean, can you imagine in a world where that would, can you imagine in a world today? No, no, (laughs) no. We had, we had, I, I was going to say, I can't, I, I'm thinking about what I can say here. Um, it was back in a time when, you know, everything was uh, the Wild West. And, you know, again, being newly, you know, they're being newly sober. And then all of a sudden you're in a world and it's like, you know, there were a lot of crazy agents and, and kids were having to go on drug runs and do, you know, things like that for the weekend. And it's like, you know, there's certain stuff I wouldn't do. But again, sitting on Bill's desk, I was a terrible assistant administratively because, you know, my letter writing and all those things, I never got that training. But I, what, what I was exceptional at was problem solving. And again, going back to your figuring it out, common sense and problem solving to me are the two biggest things when I look at young kids today. Common sense goes a long way. And a lot of times when, when, when people are coming up, like, if you just think about it, when a mistake is made or, or the, you're looking for an answer to a question, just think commonsensically. Like yep. it's, it's really simple when you just have basic common sense. And so, you know, I ended up on Bill's desk for about four months and I was already, I had a ton of relationships and I, it was great timing. And, and, you know, again, I think I was already doing stuff, right? Like I had relationships with you know, again, I'm going to date myself, but it was like Flojo was my first client. And wow. I, I got Florence Griffith Joiner was your first client. My first client. So they promoted me to be the sports person. I mean, and again, there was no sports group. It was Jack and a couple of other people who did sports stuff. And they promoted me to be sort of the sports person in LA. They said, here's your desk, here's your computer. We have no idea what you're going to do. I had no clients. They're like, figure it out. And I started and, and I met Al Joyner and Flojo was the first person uh, that I represented. I also worked with Katarina Vitt back in the day. Oh, figure skater. The, the, at the time, the Eastern. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, figure skater. And then, and then, you know, I just started there. I had no clients. It wasn't like I went and worked on somebody's client. The first person that I went to work on was, you know, the, the first big client was Dennis Rodman. I worked on with Steve Chasman back what? in the day. And that's where I really cut my teeth. Yeah, that's where I really cut my teeth. Um, you know, I had sort of the end of Dennis's career, the Lakers, the, the Mavericks, sort of the end of the Bulls. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember having to go, go on, you know, we did the double team, I think it was the double team movie deal with him. And I went to Florida for a month and stayed with the Miccosukee casino with him. And we'd be running the streets of Miami until five in the morning, six in the morning. And, you know, again, I'm sober at this yeah. point. Right. With so Dennis thank Rodman. 
they think about think about it. But I learned a lot of my tactical skills there because there were a lot of situations. And so, you know, I cut my teeth on dentists early and, it, you know, and in learning how to manage crises and manage situations, it was an amazing experience. Yes, I would imagine. Flo <laughs> Joe and Dennis Rodman, I saw you represented Kevin Garnett, um, an incredible roster, but obviously, I think most people will always, um, at least on the player representation side, recognize you for your work with Serena. But it goes back so far that I can only imagine, um, you know, the stories, and you'll never be able to tell us all of them. But there's a few things about your relationship, just in my own like curiosity, that I would love to know, and just to know where you were when you first kind of heard about the Williams sisters, being that you are a tennis lifer, right? So whether it was you heard about them playing at an early age and heard about their father and and then just kind of how you got from that point to representing her and when that was. So we can start to dig into that a little bit, Jill. Yeah, I mean, so at the age, so at ICM when I got promoted, um, the girls were really, so this is 96. Um, and you know, they were coming on to the scene and I remember going in. So, you know, I had met Richard at, you know, I was still around tennis. I still, you know, was doing tennis stuff. Um, I was around Richard at, at, you know, tournaments. And again, I, you know, developed a relationship with him and I think he thought that I was, you know, spunky and had a lot of, you know, a lot of grit to me. So I developed a relationship. And then at the time, you know, he was doing everything, you know, he was in discussions with IMG, with McCormick at the time. And, you know, I tried to explain to ICM, like, these are going to be the greatest athletes of all time. These are, it's the most unique thing. And, and the whole point, you know, back in the day was, I think, you know, marketing guarantees were offered and it wasn't something that a Hollywood talent agency was going to do. You had movie stars that were making $20 million a picture and were taking 10%. The idea of doing a marketing guarantee was foreign. And so inevitably both girls went to IMG initially, but Richard, I think because he thought I was crazy or just aggressive and ambitious gave me like a tiny piece of it that everyone kind of laughed about. It was like entertainment and off-court appearances. Like it was preposterous, but it gave me some stickiness in there. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the tennis community and everyone else was like, you know, this is ridiculous. But at the end of the day, it enabled me to develop a relationship. And Serena had an attorney um, who who passed away, Kevin Davis, who, you know, has had been with her since the beginning. And I developed a relationship with him. And I think at the time, you know, I think I developed my relationship with her. Um, you know, they knew I hustled and and was, you know, entrepreneurial as you could be back then. And, you know, I inevitably just, I think she wanted her own voice and to be at her own place. And they took a chance on me because, you know, frankly, you know, I was, I was older, but I, I had different life experience, but I hadn't been an agent for a hundred years. Um, and so I inevitably peeled her away from at the time, you know, IMG. And then it's funny, you come full circle. And, you know, when, when WME purchased IMG, you know, years ago, it's just interesting. The It all came full circle. So, you know, we kind of grew up together and she took a flyer on me. Um, and, you know, we've sort of grown up in our careers that way. So Richard had the foresight 
to allow another agency to take the majority of their business, but knew to sliver a tiny bit or take a sliver, that would make more sense, and allow you to work with it. And Serena, I'm sure, had the same type of foresight, but she was younger. That's pretty incredible. Did was, was it something you did early on in her career that you remember, like a deal or something you brought to the table, an appearance that um, really connected with them? Or was it just, which I imagine it was, like you said, the time that you started to spend to them, spend with them, you know, and they and they can identify the people that have the energy and the right hustle and the right demeanor to to kind of complement one another. And I would imagine she saw that. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. You know, this is coming at an interesting time because Richard was so far ahead of his time when you think about what he did. And we're gonna see that when King Richard comes out. And it's really the story of the beginnings. Um, you know, somebody laughed and, and and said to me, you know, who's playing you? I'm like, I played my last professional match when Venus played her first professional match at the Virginia Slims of Oakland. I followed her on court. And that's sort of where the meeting, where the movie goes. It's the beginning times. Um, and Serena is just a, just an after, you know, sort of an, a beginning of an afterthought then. And I think that he just appreciated my stickiness and my hustle. And the fact that I, when I went down, so I went down there to see him at their house and I was given directions. I pulled up and it was down, it ended up going down a dirt road. I left my car there. He picked me up in a, <laughs> in a golf cart with an army helmet on with an antenna and in we went. <laughs> I hadn't really met the girls. I hadn't met the girls and I sat there. I sat there with him. And there was a number of people around. They were all named Mrs. Carter. And I sat, I sat with him and I just talked. And, you know, I mean, Arnon Milshan was, you know, it was around the time of the Puma deal. So, you know, Richard was not traditional, but he was so far ahead of his time in creating this blueprint for her daughters, for his daughters and sort of not allowing them to be undervalued. Yes. You know, there was a great story that he walked into a Nike meeting uh, long, long time ago with a, with a leg of a man, a mannequin leg and put it on the table. You know, it was all, it was always something, but he raised daughters to be bold and powerful and to never feel diminished. And I think a lot of what you'll see in this movie, I think he just thought that I was, you know, I, he just liked my hustle that I was mm -hmm. crazy enough to come down there by myself. And like, you know, again, I didn't get, I didn't sign them. In the beginning, I got a tiny piece of it. And then I think, what, what's, your, what's your choice at that moment? Are you going to make the most out of that piece and get in there and, and be of service and develop a relationship? And, you know, I, you, I, I think in order to represent some of these best of all time, you have to be ride or die. And it's the, me yeah. the, 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 the measure of the success is not in when you're winning NBA championships or you're, you know, someone's winning grand slams or whatever the, the end prize is, it's how do you show up for them when shit's falling, you know, when shit's coming down the leg or their traumas and tragedies, because that's when you have to do your best work and being able to right side everything and make sure everything comes back to normal. And in yeah. the measure of being a great agent is, you know, how you show up in times of need versus being there when the picture's getting taken and the trophy's there. Cause that's, that's, right. that's easy. 
And that's what everybody sees as the glamour of it. But what they don't know is what goes on behind when someone can't get out of bed or someone loses a family member, whatever, whatever the thing is. Um, and, you know, I think to me, that's always been my measure of, you know, how you show up for someone in times of need is the measure of who you are as a human. I think you're right. I think you're right on with that. I have a question about the time and, and trying to really visualize it. You were at ICM. They signed Serena with IMG, but you were given a sliver at ICM to work with her. Is that yes. right? Yes. And, and where that was, was Venus? sort of 90, 96 to, I guess, 90, 94. Not, yeah, like 90, 94 to, you know, I was there for five years and then the two CEOs of, of uh, ICM, Dave Warchapter and Jim Wyatt, went over to run William Morris. And I couldn't go to William Morris because I was still in a contract with ICM. So I ended up leaving there to go work with, for Michael Ovitz at what was, the, what was his new company called AMG, Artist Management Group, if you remember that. It lasted about two years. Um, wow. You know, it was, it was a bit of a shit show. Then uh, I worked with Jeff Schwartz there. And, you know, that's when, um, you know, I ended up representing Pete Sampras for a couple of years. Uh, Jeff was building his basketball business and, you know, I ended up taking on Pete. Um, wow. And, you know, that gave me more more credibility in in the space. You know, so I had a good couple of years with Pete. And then around that time is, you know, when I peeled Serena away. And brought over to the agency. Oh, sorry. To, to Will so, no. So, yes, AMG. But then AMG, I, I think my goal was always to get to William Morris. You know, Jim and Dave were my guys. Um, and so I spent two years at AMG and then I went to William Morris um, with Pete, with Serena, the piece of Serena I had. That's when I got Serena at William Morris. Um, and, and then they bought IMG. Got well, it. And, then, and then, you know, then I was so then I was William Morris. And then we had the merger with Endeavor, which was the worst reverse takeover. Um, and I survived that. And then we bought IMG. And then, you know, all the other things we've, we've iterated to. Um, but William Morris is, you know, where I really, you know, dug in. And was Richard pretty uh, thoughtful in making sure that Serena and Venus did not have the same kind of people managing their careers? Yeah, I think in the beginning, you know, in the beginning, the decision was made. And, you know, as he was getting older and, you know, he, he, he was a renegade. Right. I mean, he was somebody way before his time and in, 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 in foreshadowing. I was going to say prophetizing. I can't pronounce it, but in having a vision for what he saw as success and breaking barriers. I mean, Venus's first Reebok deal was, you know, revolutionary, as was Serena's Puma deal. Um, and I, I think he just had a vision and I think, you know, he just wanted people that he trusted. The inner core was Larry Bailey, who was the financial advisor, Kevin Davis, the attorney. Um, and then, you know, Carlos Fleming and Stephanie Johnson did Venus. And then, and then inevitably I, I had Serena um, and there's, you know, sister Isha was very involved as well, you know, as sort of a business advisor. Um, but I think Richard just, I think he was about having the, the, 
you know, the kind of people he felt were going to be protective of his, his family, right? And, you know, you're sort of, you were on the team, you were either on the team or you were off. But, but I think, you know, I, I just think that I developed, you know, you, you become part of the family, you become part of the family or not. You know, you're sort of in the woven fabric of the family and understanding how it works and that it's an incredibly tight-knit unit. Um, and, you know, at that time, Richard was sort of taking a step back business-wise and the girls were starting to take con- more control of their business and yeah. starting to make their own decisions. And that's sort of, you know, how I came in, you know, to have a more prominent role. And Pete Sampras, my God, I did not know that. I am really yeah. impressed. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Are you still close with Pete? Not, not, no, not particularly. I mean, just, you know, Pete's very quiet, very, uh, you know, to himself. And, you know, it was interesting because I had a couple of years where he struggled. And then the last tournament he played, he won the U.S. Open. And I remember having, you know, a lot of deals on my desk. And then he basically retired. And, and, he, and he said to me, he's like, I think I want to go back to a traditional tennis agency for the next part of my life. And I'm like, go with God. Um, (laughs) You know, I, and and, you know, he didn't, you know, he, again, you've seen what he's done since. I mean, he was just, but it was spectacular being around that greatness and watching and understanding what it takes to be the best. And again, there's that through line I talk about, and they all have a commonality of doing everything they can do to be the best they can be. And some of the stuff is quirky, right? I mean, he used to have, Pete used to have, uh, had to have his hotel rooms blacked out. He could only sleep in freezing cold and in completely black rooms. It was like, and, and. It worked. It, no, no, it totally worked, but they're all idiosyncrasies everywhere on equipment. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know, he started the whole trend of having your own racket stringer. He would have, really? you know, six or eight new rackets every day. And they traveled with him. I mean, he sort of started that trend. I mean, now it's quite common. And, and you know, you have these stringers that are on the road with everybody. Um, but, that you know. That makes I, sense, though. That makes yeah. sense. It's like your uh, pit boss. Not your pit yeah. boss. You're like a uh, pit boss casino. You know what I mean, though. It's your pit stop or whatever. Yeah. Um, before we move on, rank Pete with Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. Give me your four within that. In order. <sighs> obviously, because I just named all four. God, you're really putting me out there. Um, I mean, I think I think I would say, I mean, I really wish that Pete and Roger had been able to play more head to head in the in the in the prime of Pete's career. Um, but I think you know, I'd go. It, it, it's it's hard. You go sort of through time periods. Like I think you look at how Novak's playing now, and how would that? How would Pete in his day have gone up against? The durability of Novak. I think I would say Novak, Roger, Pete, Rafa. Yeah. That was what I was unfortunately going to say too. I would love to have Roger first. Yeah. I would love to go Roger, I mean, Agassi, Roger. Yeah, you forget about Andre. I mean, again, that's why I I feel like it's so hard when these questions get asked about, you know, who fits where, you know, how do you compare Serena? You know, it's like thinking about this, you know, the record, the, the, the Grand Slam record. I mean, to me, she doesn't have to hit another ball. The, the, the Margaret Court record, I mean, half the tournaments were played with like 10 people. The yeah. first part, like you can't compare. 
Oh my the, God, she'd blank. Right. It would be six oh six oh versus Margaret. Right, but 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 <laughs> even like comparing it, like how do you compare somebody's twenty four Grand Slams in the time that they played, which was a whole different time and not even remotely close to where we are now, to someone who has twenty three in this day and age? Yeah, I, you so can't. It's like, no, well, you can't compare it, but that that's what's cool about records. I mean, I think that you're right, and that Serena's place in history is like we all know. She's not just the greatest women's tennis player; she's probably the greatest tennis player. She's one of the greatest athletes ever. But the record is cool, and that's why there's records. And it actually yeah. is cooler when they're from like another time because you're yeah. just like, you know, what am I doing? I think the Wilt, Wilt Chamberlain hundred point thing is kind of like, come on, we should throw that away. Like <laughs> that's how I feel, or at least we need some video because I don't even know what that is. Right. Um, so when Serena got, you know, I followed their careers very closely. It was so clear. And I, and I, I say this with such incredible respect. Uh, I truly admire both of them so much in every way, but it was like, as a real tennis fan, Venus was like the one you thought was going to be the greatest ever. And Serena ended up being the greatest ever. And what ends up happening is people forget that Venus is one of the like two or three or four greatest ever. Serena and will always say that Venus is her hardest competitor because they know each other so well. They know each other's games inside out. They practiced every day. And I think if whenever she's asked the question, who is your you know, fiercest opponent, it always, the answer is always Venus. And I think, you know, the, the development of both, you know, there wouldn't be a Serena without Venus, right? Of and course. Serena's the first one, first one to say that, like she paved the way for her. You know, Venus is the most gracious older sister, always so protective of Serena. And Serena's so funny because, you know, Venus is a very elegant, elegant in defeat. Serena, not so elegant in defeat, but it's what makes her who she is. She yeah. hates losing more than she likes winning. Well, well, that's the younger sibling. And you know what else um, Serena benefited from was not only she have her dad and her mom and her family and all that, but she got to actually learn under probably the second or third greatest tennis player of all time. And she was younger than them. Like that was her partner growing up. You see that with athletes who say that, you know, when they could beat their big brother, in one-on-one, -on -one, they knew they had made it. Imagine your big brother was like the other greatest player of all time. You know, she had the most incredible sparring partner. Um, but historically through their career, and I say that because I watched all these different periods and eras as a fan, um, when Serena got really sick, which back then was like I pre-social media, but I had staph infections when I was a kid. Like when I was in high school, I had them not nearly to like what um, Serena dealt with. But what I remember reading about that and it sounded like like life was on the line, right? And you talked about these scary things in people's careers. Was that, will that always be like one of those moments you reference where like things looked like they were at its darkest hour? And, and also like with as much as you could tell me, like how scary was that time? I mean, there were a couple of times, I think, you know, the, the, you know, the, the death of her sister was obviously incredibly traumatic and will always be incredibly traumatic. Um, I think, you know, the, one of the first moments was, you know, when she had, when we were in Germany, uh, she had won Wimbledon. She was going to be playing Kim Kleisters in an exhibition in Belgium in the football stadium with like a hundred thousand people. And we went to Germany from, from London because her hitting partner, Sasha was from Munich. 
and we were there, it was the World Cup final and Germany was in it, not in Germany, but we went to Germany for the night to hang out and watch it. And somebody dropped a glass on her foot in a restaurant lounge and she had sandals on. She had, she had just gotten her nails done that day. And then we went out that night for dinner and she severed her EHL tendon in her toe. We went to the hospital that night then we went to, and I had to call the promoter and say, look, we have a situation. Um, we ended up flying into Belgium. We saw the doctor there. They gave her an injection. They said it would be fine. She ended up playing the match against Kim Kleister. She was bleeding through her shoe. We ended up taking a plane to New York to see Dr. Alcheck and her tendon. They had done an MRI there, but they said they didn't see anything. It was just a, a strain. Um, we got to New York and her you know, tendon was severed and her big, her big toe basically dropped. So she had two large surgeries with that um, and was out for almost a year. And again, you know, during that time, she, she came, out of, came out of it, came back. I think she got out of the boot too early and then got on a plane to go come back to play in Linz. And she was on the plane and she said, something's wrong with my toe. And it, it had dropped again. And so she had a second surgery. Um, when the whole process was over, she got her boot taken off because she was in a boot or a cast for six months, went into New York to get the cast taken off. And we so flew a red eye in, flew a red eye back. And she got back to LA and got to the house and said, my chest hurts, having trouble breathing. And immediately her physio Esther was with her and said, we've got to go right to Cedars. And she ended up having a pulmonary embolism. Um, she had a, a number of pulmonary emboli. She had a number of blood clots in her, in her lungs. And so that was the first wildly traumatic experience. Um, and, you know, again, it was a life or death situation. It was five days in the ICU and, you know, tennis ball, like there wasn't a thought about hitting a tennis ball, you know, and then you go to, you know, the birth of Olympia, you know, I, I go being in Australia and finding out she was pregnant, you know, on blood thinners, playing in the hot sun. I'm sitting there, nobody knew. And I'm like, if she falls, what's going to happen? Um, and, and sort of dealing with that, but then, you know, she almost died when she gave birth, um, in the hospital, she had another pulmonary embolism and she self-diagnosed, she knew something was wrong. And it's the interesting thing about athletes. They know their bodies better than anybody. Yeah. And she knew something wasn't right. And she kept saying to them, there's something wrong. My chest, I can't breathe. And she forced them to give her a CAT scan. And that's where it came out. And then she had three sort of life-saving surgeries. Um, and then, you know, you look at getting through that. I mean, that was some of the four or five hardest days in my career, I think, because it wasn't about like, oh, God, she has to have a C-section. That means it's going to take longer to come back. Like, tennis was so far from it. Like, was she going to come out of this thing? Um, you know, and then, and then watching her in amazement where she stepped back on the court, I think, four and a half months later, or five months later playing Indian Wells, she was still pumping. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm looking at it and I think it was crazy, but I feel like she needed to know that she was still alive yeah. and that she was okay and she could push through this. But she's broken so many barriers and been so strong. I mean, she is the true, you know, the true meaning of resilience. A thousand percent. Did the girls get a lot of, cause I look at what's going on now um, with, Naomi Osaka, as it relates to her experiences with the media, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, mental health has played a big part in the conversations around it. And, you know, everybody deals with 
things differently. But I want to know, because I could imagine that the culture in general was so much more harsh and just, you know, anything goes when the girls were coming up. And how were they dealing with that aspect of it? The obvious like elephant in the room of the amount of just racism that they must have encountered. And then still with just all the grace and dignity and all the success continued to march on. Was it, was it challenging that side of it? Was tennis media and tennis followers tough on them in the beginning? I mean, you know, you know, the answer to that. I think, you know, when we're looking at what's happening in the landscape of sports right now and, um, you know, these young athletes being able to raise their hand and say, time out, I'm struggling. You know, neither girl was ever given the compassion or grace ever coming up. There's always been a higher bar. The bar always moved. And the level of criticism about how they came up, how they chose to not play junior tournaments, all the things that Richard did, but also just they were never given the grace to struggle and so they were brought up that you just push through you just keep pushing through can you imagine a world in which serena is playing in you know a wimbledon final you know 15 years ago and says oh you know i'm struggling i'm, I'm struggling i'm not going to play like it just it, it would have not been allowed I mean, you know, again, so I feel like in many ways they have paved the path for this generation to be able to have this voice because they've spoken up. Serena has spoken up on so many occasions, being an advocate for everybody else and speaking up and, and, and having that uncomfortable voice that nobody wanted to hear. And it was always criticized, but it's enabled this next group to be able to, you know, live humanly and not be under the 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 bullseye of everybody's opinions and criticism. No, they, they've been remarkable in that way. I think they've probably inspired beyond athletes, you know, in how to persevere and, and handle and speak in the kind of s storm of criticism. And, you know, they're just of our generation for human beings. They are just two of the most just necessary and impactful and iconic uh, individuals. And, you know, being next to that, and I have talked about this as it relates to my experience with Kevin, is exhilarating. That energy is amazing, and it, and it can make you want to work and be so good at what you do because the bar for you has been set so high. Um, what are some of the kind of like moments throughout her business career? Because they've been so many, and there have been so many like epic spots. Um, what are you kind of really proud of in just terms of like the hits, right? Like the overall body of work and the relationship I get, but give me like a hit or two yeah. um, I mean, I, from I your think, career that you're really proud of. I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is that she's had built a portfolio of companies that she's been in business with for a very long period of time. When you go back to Gatorade, to Wilson, to Nike, to JP Morgan, all of our partners have been very long-term. And I think, you know, that's that's what says the most about her, that when she gets in business with someone, she wants to know who she's getting in business with. And it's about long term stability and, and helping businesses grow. I think, you know, the the her transformative Nike deal, the you know, they're the, the Nike building, the Serena Williams building that was uh, bestowed upon her a couple of years ago that's now built and people are moving into it. You know, we just went up there 
on Monday and walking through that was surreal. I think it's very, I can't imagine what it's like being her and, you know, looking at that building that is your building. And, and um, you know, the, uh, the, the thing though is that it's not about the building for her. It's about what are the companies do and are they doing what they say they're going to do in terms of, of making impact and creating opportunities for diverse diverse individuals and, and and creating pathways for opportunities for people. So I think everything that she does has an earmark on, you know, what impact does it have? There's got to be authenticity in the brand. She's not, a, does not like being and is not a good actress when it comes to acting as if she is on board with something. So you really see, um, you know, all the partners that we have, you know, there've been some deals that, you know, you just do because the money is, you know, something you can't say no to, but like, I think, let's, let's stop there one sec. I can't. That's, that's gotta be the mic. That's gotta be the migraine medicine, right? And the <laughs> pharmaceutical medicine, because I'm just watching and I have to be honest as somebody that like thinks and overthinks everything. She's so flawless in every decision and you guys are so flawless. And then I see these pharmaceutical yeah, I mean, ads. But, but she gets migraines and she uses the product. So in that sense, but you know, that's I think true. It, that's true. Yeah. That's fair. And the she bag never, was good. The bag was good. Right. But she she you know, so uh, again, I think right now the focus, I mean, you know, her main passion is Serena Ventures. And, you know, she's a very entrepreneurial businesswoman. We have a jewelry oh business. My God. We have a jewelry business. She has S by Serena Fashion. We're in the process of 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 ramping up the beauty, the beauty company. Um, you know, her 2.0, I think, is going to be far greater than you know, what she's done on the court in terms of the impact that she has on the world. Oh, um, yeah. and, 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 and so, you know, when I say like, I love some of the old beat spots. I love the, this mama, uh, JP Morgan spot Gatorade did a great, like a mama campaign. Some of those campaigns to me were so impactful yeah. um, in, in, in telling a story. And her Nike spots are always Nike amazing. spots you are, you know, I mean, there's nobody better yeah. than Nike in, in terms of storytelling. You guys have really built, you know, one of those blueprint businesses, the whole Serena enterprise. I mean, I love her partner or her um, her colleague, Allison, at her venture fund. I mean, mm -hmm. you guys have such incredible people around you. And, you know, there's the LeBrons and Jay-Z's and Kobe and Tom Brady and Serena and Venus. And I'm forgetting others, Kevin, that have just built these incredible businesses because they're authentic, iconic athletes with vision and they're truly entrepreneurs because it doesn't happen just because of Jill Smoller or Richard Williams. It never can happen because not, of that. It happens because you put the best people around you. And I think she's always been great at that. And, you know, I know what I don't know and I'm okay with that. And I'm not an expert in everything. So it's a matter of, you know, she's, She's got a great venture team. I mean, all these businesses have really great people around them. And I think that's what makes, that's what will continue to make it thrive. You know, putting together, she's very good at putting together great teams. And for you as a uh, super agent, remember I said that earlier in the interview, you know, how are you? Because when I, I consciously, you know, I repped a, a handful of musicians and then athletes. And when Kevin and I met in, some of the same things that you talked about as it relates to you and Serena in terms of timing in life and who you both were, you know, I really honed in on obviously what we are starting to really build here and wanted something that was the two of ours. And, you know, as much as I absolutely love working with athletes and talent, you know, it was easier for me to work with them via the platforms that we could build together. And that really my building with Kevin was my focus. 
I say all that to say you're able to do both. And it's incredibly impressive because um, you still have other clients and real big time clients, you know, and that balance also with your own life, which at times I think is an afterthought, you know, for people in your position. That's tough. How have you and where is the energy and the drive and what is exciting to you about kind of some of the other athletes that you work with, and we don't have to name names, and just how you're able to kind of compartmentalize that with this business with Serena that's all, in, you know, all consumed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, you, if you have great teams around you, she has great team around her, you know, outside of me as well. Um, <clears throat> if you let people do their jobs, you know, and let people thrive, you know, the, the business thrives. I think I've always liked, um, having my hands in a lot of different disciplines because I like to learn. I think if you're not learning and you're not changing, you're dying. And I think one of the hardest things in sort of growing up in this business is it's so dramatically different than when we started. So if you don't, if you're not a student of learning and you're not a student of change and you're willing to change with it, you're left behind. And I think, you know, being in different disciplines, whether it's basketball, whether it's track and field, whether it's tennis, whatever it is, whether it's music, you're always getting new knowledge in the way things work. And you bring that discipline to all your, all your clients. And you have a, a language and an understanding that's so vast if you're willing to be open and be a sponge. And I think, you know, the hard thing in our business is everybody who gets to the top feels like they know everything. I try to go into every day trying to figure out what I'm going to learn today. Because if you're, you have to keep changing and morphing and growing. Um, you know, or you get left behind. And I think that's the scary thing, you know, for someone like me is like, if you don't have a thirst for learning and curiosity, um, it's really dangerous because you just, it, it, the business is getting done differently now. Yep. You're a private person. Um, that goes I, into the balance when you said balance. I've ne- the one thing that I've always struggled with is work-life balance. Um, you know, I made a choice to put my head down and, uh, and, and work. Right. And, you know, I, I didn't anticipate myself being, you know, unmarried, no kids at this point in my life. But I just, you know, I've poured everything into my career. And, and you know, you can't look back with regrets. I have a really close family. I have great friends. And, you know, I, I always have also felt, um, you know, our role and what we do is to generally stay behind the scenes and, and enable our clients to thrive. And, it, you know, I've never had it be about me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my private, I don't think I'm particularly private. I think I, you know, I, my, my clients have taken up so much of my life, which was a choice. And, you know, again, you know, I'm at a stage where I'm looking at, okay, like what, what are the next, what's the next year? What's the next five years? What do I want to be doing? You know, will this be continue to be stimulating? And, you know, is, you know, what is the pivot if there's going to be a pivot? And, you know, that's what I spend my time thinking about now. Um, but, you know, definitely I am not the prototype of having a balanced life. And, you know, I think I'm at a stage in my life where, you know, I'm not 25, I'm not 30. It's hard to change. <laughs> it's hard to change what you do. And, you know, again, that's a product of my, you know, I think my damage growing up and the things that I've experienced and that sort of made me into the person that I am and gave me the resilience that I have and the discipline that I have, but there's definitely drawbacks. Like, you know, I, I, 
you know, uh, so so it's not about being private. It's about, you know, me needing to focus more on living my best life. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you when you get that balance, I'm still craving it, too. I, I have a good balance. But when you get, I think, the ultimate balance, I would imagine you're going to be even so much more productive in all of your new work and business ventures, because it'll be yeah. like a new muscle that you're exercising yeah. and a new point with all this experience. And, um, you know, and I think before I let you go, I want to just ask two more questions. The kind of culture of people that work with superstar athletes or, or entertainers or musicians is that people really want the person next to the person that person wants to be known right? They want the regard. They put their name out there. There's a lot of self-promotion and marketing, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone. I felt like it was crucial in building what we wanted to build, and I thought that it was appropriate in building what we wanted to build. Um, people in the industry know who you are, but Serena is the most recognizable, iconic athlete in the world. So I understand from a personal life standpoint, but from a professional life, things have changed. Do you ever feel like, oh shit, look at these people now. I got to get more out there. I need people to understand what I've done. I got to set my roots up and for this next phase of my career. And I need people to know who Jill Smoller is more. Does that cross your mind? I would assume I know the answer, but um, I mean, look, I, I think this is the first, you know, I like I, I when you first sent this, I'm like, man, I'm not like, this is not what I do. <laughs> like, I, I, it's not because it's about the clients. And yes, I think your good work speaks for itself. I have always felt like you lead with the work, you lead with the grind. And, and, you know, again, I'm a woman doing what I'm doing. I don't allow that to be a barrier of entry. I never have. I mean, am I getting paid the same as someone? And I, like, I don't know. I don't care. I just want what's mine. And I want to get what my clients deserve and have earned. And so, you know, yes, I think as I continue in this career. And as you know, Serena transitions out a bit and her business doesn't transition, but you know, is would I take on the, another, you know, those are all the things I'm thinking about now, but I definitely, you know, I, again, you know, I've, I've not been quiet, but I've never been a great, a, a big self promoter. I just have always felt like the work needs to speak for itself and you know, the rest, the rest rises. Um, you know, could I, could I be, could I, could I do more of it? Sure. But I'm like, I, I always feel like it's a very slippery slope to the clients feeling like you think it's about you Yeah. and it's not about us. Like no, they, no. they do the work. We are a backstop to be able to help with their greatness and help them become the, the, the you know, continue to become the best they can be. And I feel like there's a way to do it, but I've never been one. I've never been one on, you know, announcing every deal or doing that. It's like the client is the focus. Yeah, I respect that. I respect that. And I think you've clearly have the body of work and have the work to show for it. And I do appreciate you doing this pod, especially since you do very little. Yeah, like it makes me nervous. I always say nothing good can come of these. Someone no. picks something, something good comes out. Somebody picks something out of it. And it's like, so, you know, again, I, I always, you know, I'm, naturally in the forefront because I'm a woman doing what I do, but I, I just feel like, you know, the clients, you rise with the clients and you do good work and you, and you, you know, you, you continue to grind and you continue to change and grow that, you know, the rest of it speaks for itself. And, you know, there's a time and a place to go out and toot your horn and, 
you know, say, look at me. But I think, you know, the nature of what we do is letting our clients shine. I love that. Well, Jill, thank you very much. Thank As you. I imagined I would, I've learned so much more about my friend and very impressive and just really incredible career you've had and you have so much career in front of you let's play tennis sometime yeah anytime as soon as my knee gets a little better i'm we're on the court in new york all right i think bad right. knee jill might be better Ooh. for my competition level anyway yeah. <laughs> all right thank you everybody all right take care